Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dave Ansell. First up, let's take a look at some of this week's biggest scientific breakthroughs. Dave, what have you got for us? Well, the Pioneer anomaly appears to be rather less anomalous than people previously thought. The Pioneer anomaly sounds like some kind of thriller novel, but it's actually a slight acceleration on the Pioneer probes. These are space probes launched in the 70s and are some of the most distant man-made objects that we've made. As they headed away from the solar system, their path was carefully tracked and a strange anomaly was discovered. They were decelerating slightly faster than they should be, according to Einsteinian gravity. The effect was tiny, about one part in 10 to the minus 10 metres per second squared, but it was measurable and it got lots of theoreticians very interested. This is because studies of galaxies indicate that gravity may be stronger at larger distances and this would tend to agree with it. So theorists have been creating lots of new theories of gravity to fit this data. In 2008, a third of the anomaly was explained by Federico Francisco and colleagues. The spacecraft generates power by heat produced by radioactive decay. This heat is lost by thermal radiation, which is a form of light. Light carries momentum, so it can apply a force to the spacecraft. It's like a very, very weak rocket. They hadn't managed to explain the whole anomaly even when they'd taken into account all the heat sources. Now they think they have. A source of heat, the main electronics compartment, is immediately behind the parabolic dish the spacecraft uses to communicate with Earth. So thermal radiation from this electronics will reflect off the dish, giving the spacecraft a slight extra deceleration, explaining very, very neatly the anomaly. So unfortunately for the theorists and their chance of a Nobel Prize, Einstein's equations seem to still hold. All I can say about that is oops, because lots of people have put lots and lots of time into developing things that fit dodgy data, basically. It's, it's nice that they've now solved it, but also what about the, the people who've come up with all these other explanations? Did they lead to anything useful or is this now completely in the dustbin? I'm sure they'll, they'll keep looking at their um, experiments and trying to find other data which doesn't quite work with Einstein. I, it's all a good intellectual exercise, if nothing else. So the moral of this story is don't disagree with Einstein, I guess. Have you got a head for heights, Dave? It's not the best. Me neither. Maybe this could help you. There's a study which has been published in the journal PNAS this week. It's by Dominique de Curvin and his colleagues. And what they have done, they're based over in Europe, um, what they have done is to recruit 40 people with diagnosed acrophobia, fear of heights, and they divided them into two groups. So both groups, an intervention group and this control group, were given what's called graded exposure therapy. So when someone's scared of something, one way that you can help to desensitise them is you expose them in a graded way to the thing that they find worrying, scary. You let them get used to being frightened and then when they say they're calming down a bit, you expose them a bit more until eventually they learn to overcome their fear. So they put them into that kind of exercise. In this case, what they did was to put them in a virtual reality headset which showed them climbing up all these platforms, making it look like that they were teetering on the brink of all these precipices, which would be terrible if you fell off. And, of course, it, it is very realistic and it makes people think they are literally going to topple off this building. Now, as they did this, they're asking them, OK, how stressed do you feel? And when the people report that they feel better, they make them go even higher and so on. And so that was the, the sort of therapy they were doing. And they did that three times to both the groups. But the critical difference between the two groups of people was one of the groups got given a dose of a chemical called cortisol. And cortisol is one of the body's natural stress hormones. It's produced by your adrenal glands when you get stressed about things, but after you've had the stress. 
So when people get stressed, they make this cortisol chemical which goes around in the bloodstream and we know it influences the way that the brain works and the way that you process certain bits of information. So what they then did was to follow up these people after they'd had their three treatments at three days and at 28 days after they'd been exposed to these heights. They repeated the exercise and they measured how stressed the people got. And what was really interesting is that the control subjects improved. In other words, they reported 30% less stress after this. But the people who'd had the cortisol had 60% less stress afterwards. So they had got very, very much better than they used to be at dealing with heights. And you then ask, well, why should we see this difference when you give these people this natural body chemical to take? And the answer is that we know that cortisol goes into the brain very well. When it goes into the brain, it impairs recall. It makes it harder to remember things. And this is important because in courtrooms and things where you're putting people in stressful situations and asking them to recall minute details of the proceedings of a case, that can be tricky if you've got a hormone going around which is going to impair recall. But the important thing is that it also reinforces the establishment of new memories that you're just about to make. So by giving the people the cortisol, they made it harder for them to remember that they were scared in the first place and they made it easier for them to remember that actually it was fine and they survived after all. And the researchers say, look, it's a natural chemical, it's very few side effects and therefore, given that this strategy worked for heights, it could well generalise to other phobias too. Why should cortisol have that effect naturally? Um, one would think that it's some kind of uh, evolutionary behaviour whereby if you have a system where when something makes you stressed you need to pay attention and learn very well what causes stress and how you got out of it, if, assuming you survive and therefore it helps you to do that and it doesn't uh, have you remembering all kinds of spurious things that you don't need to remember at the time that you're facing the stress. I would guess that would be the best interpretation um, at this time. Well, in last year's general elections, we had the exciting spectacle of a leaders' debate. And to help us get an idea of how well the speakers were doing, we could watch The Worm, which is a real-time computer-generated graph that shows how much a subset of the audience either approve or were disapproving of the comments that the leaders were making. But could this be having an impact on the audience and also on the voter by biasing them? Professor Colin Davis from the Department of Psychology at Royal Holloway University of London has been trying to find out. So the worm is something that has been around for quite a while. Initially, it was something that was used uh, particularly by politicians so that they could see for themselves how well their message was playing. And then at some point, people in television thought, well, this is interesting for the viewer as well, so we should give them access to this information. They can find out what uh, voters think about different things that the candidates are saying. But the question that we were particularly interested in uh, was what effect the worm might be having on what the viewers at home thought about the debate uh, and, and what the candidates were saying. So how did you actually do the study? Well, we, we ran a, what was really conceptually a very simple experiment, uh, although technically it was somewhat difficult. We had two quite large groups of subjects come in on uh, the evening of the final election debate last year, on April 29th, and they watched a version of the debate that included uh, the worm, this squiggly line going up and down. But we played a little trick on our subjects, because although they were watching the genuine live debate, which we were getting from the BBC stream, the worm that they were seeing wasn't the real worm. It was controlled by us. So I was sitting in my office watching debate and pressing some keys to move the worm about and hopefully making it look plausible. And the worm that our subjects saw was based on the one that I was moving about, 
but which was biased in a particular direction. So for one group, the worm was systematically biased in favour of Gordon Brown, and for the other group, it was biased in favour of Nick Clegg. And then we used some video mixes so that we could superimpose our worms over the live BBC broadcast. And based on people's responses afterwards via questionnaire, we can tell that our deception was successful. So the subjects on the whole believed that this was a real broadcast, uh, the worm was genuine. Um, but more critically, what was the outcome when you asked the students who won the debate then? Right, so um, what our results suggest is that actually the worm is having a huge influence. In fact, much greater than we had even anticipated. So our two groups had completely different ideas about who had won the debate, and their opinions were consistent with what the worm had been telling them. So the group that saw a worm which favoured Gordon Brown thought that he had won the debate, whereas the group that saw the worm which favoured Nick Clegg overwhelmingly thought that he was the winner. Uh, and more worryingly, perhaps, we saw a similar, uh, perhaps slightly smaller, effect when we asked people about their choice of preferred prime minister. So, you know, if people had been voting immediately after this debate, it seems like our manipulation could have had a significant effect on how they voted. But it's only a manipulation if the indication given by the worm is artificially biased or it's not based on a big sample size. Because if it's representative of the population as a whole, then that should be fine, shouldn't it? But how many people, then, are those worms based on? If we look at, at what the BBC did... When they generate that worm, how many people are they asking to produce that data that we're seeing? Well, that's particularly concerning. So the BBC's worm was based on only 12 undecided voters for each candidate. Uh, and that's pretty typical. The ITV had their own worm, which was based on 20 undecided voters. CNN uh, in the US used the worm uh, for the presidential debates in 2008, and they had uh, 30 voters for their worm. So, you know, very small samples, much smaller than those that you would ordinarily use for uh, political polling, uh, could very easily be affected by uh, a small number of outliers, could very easily be uh, deliberately manipulated. Because I think the point that, that you've made in your paper is that the whole point of these TV debates is to try to present the leaders in an impartial way without any media spin and filtering. And as soon as you impose a statistically totally implausible group like 12 people on something like that, generating this worm, you completely skew everything because 12 people is such a tiny sample that... And given that these are, th these are people that are probably recruited local to a TV station, if you just hoik out the local population and put them in, you've got a terrible sub-selection problem, haven't you? Yes, you've really got no guarantee that you will have a representative sample. Uh, and I think there's, you know, there's also some cause to be concerned about uh, partisan forces attempting to manipulate this. I mean, one thing we know, for instance, is that The Guardian had their own worm, what they called a sentiment tracker, and clearly no one would claim that that was a representative sample. But it's interesting to note that the Liberal Democrats uh, were caught trying to manipulate uh, the Guardian worm. Uh, so all of their staffers from Liberal Democrat offices were uh, using lots and lots of computers to vote in that. You know, beyond that, though, um, yes, as you say, the debate, if it works well, is about giving viewers a chance to form their own opinion in a way that, that isn't affected by media spin. And the worm is stopping them from doing that. You know, when we see after the debate, spin doctors come on, Alistair Campbell say, uh, well, Gordon Brown clearly won the debate. You know, we have the opportunity to think, well, clearly he's biased. But the worm is much more insidious than that. And I think that's a real concern. And just to finish off very briefly, Colin, 
what would be your proposed solution? Should the media users be reporting where their sample comes from and what scale it is, how big their worm sample is based on, so that people have some chance of making, therefore, a judgment as to whether it can be relied on? Or should we just ban it altogether? Well, uh, yeah, my preference would be to say that we shouldn't have a worm at all. Uh, if, if there is going to be a worm, then yeah, I think it should be very tightly controlled. And in the same way that there are quite strict rules about the uh, opinion polls that you see in newspapers, there should be rules governing the worm. So it should be very clear uh, how it's been uh, created, uh, what the sample is that were used and so forth. Fantastic. Thank you. That's Professor Colin Davis from Holloway and uh, that's the University of London, of course. He's published that work this week in the journal PLOS One. Dave. Brilliant. Now, a way of powering chillers with just waste heat is being improved. Even in the UK, air conditioning is becoming more and more popular. In parts of the world with a less temperate climate, it's a huge use of energy. Along with other forms of cooling for fridges and server farms, it all adds up to a huge amount of power use. At the same time, a large amount of potential work is being wasted from low-grade heat from industrial purposes, or for that matter, from the sun. One way of taking advantage of this is called an adsorption chiller. These work by having two chambers covered in silica gel, which attracts water molecules onto its surface, a bit like a sponge, so it dries out the air. One of these is open to whatever you want to cool, which is covered with water. The water evaporates um, on the, from there, cooling that area, and then condenses onto the silica gel. Eventually the gel becomes saturated, at which point you use the other chamber to absorb the water. Meanwhile, the original chamber is heated to 70 or 80 degrees centigrade, drying it out, and then you recondense the water and recycle it. These can cool down water or air down to about maybe 4 degrees centigrade using a tiny fraction of the electricity of a conventional cooler. But normally they're at least four or five times larger, so they're very impractical and uneconomic to use widely. Peter McGrail and his team have been working on replacing the critical silica gel. They're constructing materials made up of metals and inorganic molecules, which can be engineered to self-assemble to form very open structures with a huge surface area, which should mean that the material can absorb three or four times more water than silica gel, weight for weight, plus the strength of the bonding between the water molecule and the surface can be very carefully tuned, allowing them to optimise um, this, the temperature of the waste heat you're using and how cold you want to cool your cold end, making the process far more efficient. This opens up the possibility of cooling computer server farms with waste heats from a power station, or even have air conditioning powered by the heat from the sun. So we'll have uh, nice cool homes in the future. Let's hope so. Thank you, Dave. Well, just to finish off this week, um, interesting discovery, which has been published in the journal Nature this week. Gordon Lithgow and his colleagues, they're based at the Buck Institute in America. They've actually discovered that a dye, which has been lurking under our noses for a very long time, it's used in pathology laboratories to stain tissue in order to look for what are called beta amyloid deposits. Beta amyloid builds up in the brains of people who have Alzheimer's disease, for example. It's a pathological protein. They wondered, well, if we've got a dye which binds to it to show where it is, could this dye also be given to something so it would go inside the body and bind to the aggregates and make them less harmful because what these aggregates can do is damage brain cells and they do lead to Alzheimer's type diseases, for example. So they started using this chemical. It's called thioflavin T, THT. And they didn't use mice or humans, but they did use microscopic worms called C. elegans, which are very well understood genetically and anatomically. So they're very good, cheap, easy, reproducible study subjects. They started giving them this dye at low doses and they found that worms, just healthy worms, lived 80% longer in some cases. And as Gordon Lithgow says, they looked younger and they moved around a lot 
lot more, even when they were older. Now, to find out why this was happening, they then started using some genetically modified forms of these worms, which had been programmed to develop a worm equivalent of an Alzheimer's-type condition, where they get a, a paralysing muscle state. And they found that the levels of paralysis in these worms, when they were given this dye, was 20% of control animals that didn't have any of this dye. When they went hunting for why this is happening, they found that several things are probably going on. One is that the dye seems to turn on genes in the worm, and they now know what some of those genes are, which make cells better able to defend themselves. Specifically, what that means is that they mean that the proteins in the cells that normally tangle up and misfold themselves to make these beta amyloid deposits, those proteins are much more stable because the cell looks after them better. And also, the dye directly binds to the, to the proteins and stabilises them itself. So where could this lead us? Well, what they're saying is that as we now understand the chemistry of these dye molecules quite well, if we go looking for other molecules that have a similar chemical nature or structure, there may even be some which are already in, in the formulary used to treat other conditions, they may well have the same action. And we could therefore have a way of stabilising the proteins in the human body which give rise to diseases like Alzheimer's disease and preventing those diseases progressing using this sort of technology. Is it likely to have other effects on lifespan as well as just Alzheimer's? Because it appears with the worms that a really huge part of their ageing seems to be this build-up of proteins. Well, it's not just the build-up of proteins. It's that in all of us, as we get older, proteins do tangle themselves up the wrong way. And this includes making cataracts in your eyes. The reason that the lens in the eye becomes foggy with age is because the crystallines, the proteins that make the matrix of your lens, eventually tangle up the wrong way. And they, instead of letting light go through smoothly, they scatter it all over the place. So this happens sort of commonly in many tissues of the body. And if you can find chemicals that bind to these proteins and help to lock them into the right shape, they find it much harder to form the wrong shape. And therefore, you remain viable and healthy in all your tissues for much longer. Well, that's it for the news this week. If you'd like to follow up on any of the items that we've covered, then the references as well as transcripts of those stories are on our website. That's at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.